Amen. You can go ahead and take a seat. My name's Neely, and I'm one of the pastors here at Overlake. I work with the middle school and high school students. And so this morning, I'm so excited to be in here with you guys. Um, we're starting this new series called Curiously Strong Faith. And um, I don't know, the title right away caught my attention, and maybe because I'm coming out of summer camp season, and I hang out with students and middle school students particularly, something about them struck out to me as curiously strong. And um, I'm not sure if you spend any time with sixth to eighth grade boys, but there's a very distinct smell to them. I, I believe the room or odor was described as, as a mix between onions and cologne. So that's a good combo. It's curiously strong, kind of, kind of, kind of overwhelming a little bit. But here's the deal. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you in on a little secret, and because um, I, I believe in being fair and equal. Um, I spent a, a week on a boat with 20 high school girls, and they stink, real bad. Like they're adorable, super cute. You would never know it. Disgusting. It's it's curiously strong, disgusting. It's over, like I had to take breathers and go to the boys' boat for it. I mean, that's how bad it was. Um, but there are a lot of curiously strong things happening this summer, like the lack of rain and the record-breaking heat. I mean, this week in Seattle, we broke a record of consecutive days over 90. That's crazy. It's curiously strong. Or, or we could talk about the U.S. women's soccer team, right? Curiously strong. In the final cup, final game of the World Cup, in 16 minutes, they score three goals. I don't know if that's ever happened in any game except five-year-olds. You know, like, it's curiously strong. And then we all know and love our dear, I can call him ours now, Russell Wilson. Yeah, at um, a huge five foot ten height is curiously strong for for uh, a quarterback, right? And I just want to point out, apparently, also is his self control when it comes to his girlfriend. Um, hashtag True Love Waits. All right. Um, if you don't know what that is about, Google it later. You'll, very interesting story. All right. Of course, this series isn't about those things. It's about some curiously strong people who are in the Bible. And they're curiously strong because maybe when you hear their names, the first thing you don't think about is their strong faith. And so what we're going to do over this series is kind of dig into their lives, look at their stories, see how they might be curiously strong. And then, of course, how that would apply to our lives, how it might apply to our faith and our stories. And so today I want to talk with uh, introducing Esther to you. And I love Esther, the character of Esther, the story of Esther in the Bible. In fact, I have a, a big piece of artwork in my office. It's a, a art of Esther, and it says, let my people live. I love her story. And if you have grown up in church or been around church, you've heard her story, probably in Sunday school, or maybe you have seen the veggie tales of Esther's life, which just for the record, I, I feel like this might be disappointing for some of you, but there is no such thing as the eternal island of Tickle. So that is not a real thing. Um, that is not actually in the story. So VeggieTales has disappointed us a little bit. But I want to tell you that when I heard her story, it played out like a Disney prin princess. Young, pretty, probably had this beautiful singing voice. She would randomly break out in song. And it was a love story complete with this silly, clueless Prince Charming who picked her out of a beauty pageant. Does that sound familiar to you? Well, today I'm going to dig in a little bit deeper to the story of Esther, and I think that you'll find she actually had a curiously strong faith, something that we can learn from. 
and learn what it might be like to live in this world in such a radical way like Esther. And so what I want to do is I want to unpack her story a little bit deeper so that we're all on the same page. So once upon a time, there was a king. And this king ruled the Persian Empire, which at that time was massive. It was huge. It encompassed 20 modern-day countries like Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Belgium. Actually, not Belgium. That's, I didn't do very good in geography in high school, and so sometimes I get a little mixed up with what's in the Middle East. So Belgium is not there, guys. Somewhere else. I couldn't tell you where, but it's not there. So, but this is back in the day when kings had like absolute power. It's so different than our time. They had real, absolute, absurd, crazy, awesome, awful power. And they could literally do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. They could say something and it had to be done. And this king, who's part of Esther's story, his name is Xerxes. And he wants to throw a party. And so he wants to do it to show off his power and his wealth. And so he invites all these men to come celebrate from other countries and come celebrate and see his wealth. And for seven days in this party, they drink the best wine out of goblets of gold. And they just are celebrating. And on the seventh day, something happened at this party that suddenly put Esther's story into motion. And you can follow along. We're going to read some of the passage. It's in your outline, or you can follow it on the screen. And we're going to read along and see what happens. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, meh, biz, harb, biggie, abeg, z, and cargus. I just made their names up because I don't know how to say them. So, you know, when you're reading scripture, if you don't know, just call them biggie. It works. All right. <laughs> My favorite's meh, but um, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So the queen was summoned, and here's what's interesting is most scholars, when they look at the text, they believe that she was actually summoned to the room in only her crown. And so she refuses. She says, no, I'm not coming. And the king and all his men, they're angry and they're afraid. This is interesting. They're afraid. The men gather around the king and they begin to talk about their fear. And this is their fear. What will happen when everyone hears that the queen disobeyed the king? Will suddenly women everywhere stop obeying their husbands? That's their fear. That's their real legitimate fear in this moment. And so the king must show his power. He must demonstrate that that cannot happen. And so he banishes the queen. And again, many scholars believe that she was probably killed. And so the king wants a new wife. And so he commands all the single ladies from his rule to enter an elaborate beauty pageant. And they spend a year getting ready, anointing themselves, getting pretty. And a young woman who happens to be Jewish, Jewish, wow, struggled in the first service with that one too. Um, amen. Okay. She happens to be Jewish and her name is Esther and she unwillingly goes to this beauty contest because she's ordered to and she winds up getting selected. Now here's the thing is uh, Esther doesn't tell anyone that she's Jewish, not the king, not anyone. The only person who knows is her cousin Mordecai who raised her. 
And so it's kind of a secret, but she marries the king, and they live happily ever after the end. Well, not quite the end, right? There's this guy in the king's cabinet named Haman. Now, what I found out this week when I was researching this story a little bit deeper is that the, the Jewish people, they still get together and they still celebrate this, this every year, this celebration of Esther, and it's called Purim. And they gather in the synagogues, and it's this huge party and celebration. They wear masks, and they really have a party because this is when God showed up. And so the rabbis will tell the story, and the people are encouraged that whenever Haman's name is said, to boo and hiss so loud that you cannot hear his name. So we're going to try this again and see how it goes. All right, you guys ready? There's this guy in the king's cabinet named Haman. So nice. Good. Oh, hiss. Oh, nice touch. Yes, I like it. Okay, feel free to keep on for a little bit. At some point, it will get annoying, so please stop. All right. <laughs> I'll give you the cue. Watch for me. So he's, he's very puffed up and full of himself. And he goes to the king and he says, I have an idea for an edict. Will you issue it? That whenever I walk past people, they must bow down. And the king's like, yeah, I'll sign off on that. So one day he's walking through the streets and Mordecai, he walks past Mordecai, and Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. Good job. Refuses because for Mordecai to bow down would mean idolatry. He chooses to only worship God, and to bow down would be idolatry, so he refuses. And Haman is livid. That's right. He's so upset. And he, you know what, he already doesn't like the Jews. He already thinks they're in his land and taking his things, and he already doesn't like him. And so this gives Haman the opportunity to do what he finally wanted to do, and that was to get rid of the Jewish people. So this is what happens. You can follow along in your outline. This is probably a good time not to boo and hiss. Unless you're feeling really inspired. Do whatever you need to do. Then Haman, oh, a few, okay, okay, said to King Xerxes, there's always a few. And there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all of your province, provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's law. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So he's asking the king, can we destroy these people who are living in your land? And the king basically says, yeah, do whatever you want. And actually part of his response is, yeah, and do whatever you want with your money too. You know, I don't need it. So he's not even being bought off. He's just agreeing to the plan. So a few verses later, we see that dispatches were sent out by couriers to all, the Jew, to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, on one single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. This is not good news for the Jews, Right? to be completely wiped out, women and children, every young and old, on one day. And Mordecai overhears this plan, so he goes to Esther, and he says, Esther, you need to do something about this. Do something for yourself, because you're a Jew. Save yourself. Speak up for your people. But Esther is afraid. I mean, she's afraid because not only has she hidden her identity of being a Jew, she is also fully aware of what happened to the last queen. 
Like, this is in the back of her mind the whole time. And so Mordecai, he's kind of frustrated because she's not willing to step out. And this is what Mordecai says to her when she refuses. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family's father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther hears these words and she responds in courage. She says, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat and, or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And then Esther creatively comes up with a plan to petition the king to save her people. And the king stays Haman's hand. And instead of killing Mordecai on the gallows that Haman had built for him, that is where Haman dies himself. The end. Roll the veggie credits. You know, that's the end of the story, but, but let's look at it. There's some things we should know about it, some more things we should note. The first thing I think that's important to understand is that Esther, along with several other books in the Old Testament, were written when the, the Jews, when the Israelites were misplaced. They were in exile. They weren't in their homeland. They, they, they were displaced people. And so when you read this story, you need to understand this is a story about what it means to be a person of faith who is exiled, who is living in a foreign place with people who they do not belong or seem to, to want to be belonged to. Like there is this tension in the book. And so when you think about Esther, when you think about this reality of her living in a foreign land, you need to understand how that might apply to us. And I think when I start to process it that way, it changes how I view the story. Because you see, we as followers of Jesus, as the church, we are people in exile. We're displaced. This earth, this place right here is not our home. And so we're a faith community of people asking, how do we live out our faith in a foreign place as foreign people? And so that leads right to our first point, and you can find it in your, your outline. It's this, earthly power is an illusion. So I learned this for the first time in fifth grade. I was sitting next to a boy named Glenn. And we're hanging out, and uh, I don't know what happened on this particular day, but things turned. And we got in a little bit of an argument, and we were having a go-to. I don't know, maybe I was unwilling to let him copy off my math. I'm sure that's what it was. Um, and at some point, Glenn looks at me. He says, Neely, you need to shut up. And I was like, oh, no, you didn't. You know, like, I was like, you don't know me. You don't get to tell me what to do. Like, I don't know what, like, and I would just like to say that normally I am a lover and not a fighter, but something happened in this moment because I was like, Glenn, after school at the playground, it's going down. So I challenged Glenn to a fight. And I don't, like I said, I've never done this before. I didn't, I was not, I didn't have a reputation of beating people up. Like, that was not the norm. If anything, it was the other way around for me. So we meet after school. And, you know, I grew up in Washington, so it rains a lot, typically. And so we have these outdoor play structures. The whole structure is just kind of an outline of a building made of cement, right? It's, it's sturdy. So we met out there. 
And we, I have three friends, he has three friends, we meet up, Glenn and I, we meet up, you know. I don't know what's happening, like, I am, like, so nervous, like, I am, like, gonna pee, I don't know what's happening, like, I'm freaked out, okay, because I do not do this. And, like, I'm the kind of person that watches, like, sports, and they start to fight, and I'm like, turn it off, you know, like, I'm afraid, this is not me. So I walk up, and I'm like, Glenn, do not ever tell me to shut up again. At which point, Glenn kicks me in the gut. And I bend over, and I'm like, tears in my eyes, and rage takes over, right? Like someone else comes in, because I grab Glenn by the hair, and I just slam his head into one of the cement walls. At which point, yeah, not my finest moment, he starts bawling, starts crying, and runs off, right? He goes home, tells his mom, I get called into the principal's office. My, Principal's like, I think there's another way to deal with people telling you to shut up. I was like, yeah, you tell me how. No, I, I, I was like, I was like, okay, okay, okay. You know, but I was like feeling really good because I was like, I'm the queen bee now. Like, people know, don't mess with me. In fact, Glenn knew it so well that every day for the rest of fifth grade, he put lollipop and horse stickers on my desk. Like every day, he was right here. Glenn, Glenn, do this. He's like, okay. You know, like, I was in control. I was the queen of my domain. Like, Cottonwood Elementary, I ruled, you know? But something very unfortunate happened. Middle school, right? <laughs> right around the corner, like middle school. And it was so, you know, it didn't take long before someone else could put me in my place. Someone could tell me to shut up and I could not fight back or I was unwilling to fight back. And so I learned this power that I thought I had gotten was an illusion. And Esther is telling us, the book of Esther, the story is telling earthly power is an illusion. And it's interesting kind of how it's trying to play that out because at the very beginning of the book of Esther, the author wants us to be afraid of the king, right? The author is writing like, look how majestic the king is. Look at this party. Look at this wealth. And when he wants, he can have someone banished and killed. Look at how powerful he is. And at the same time that that's happening, Esther is one of the only books in the Bible where God's name is not even mentioned. So it's almost like this, the author is trying to, to kind of hype up earthly power. Like, look how amazing it is. And where is God? He's hidden. He's hidden. But the author is trying to actually pull us in so that we can see that God is orchestrating something behind the scenes that he's always at work redeeming his people. He's always at work, and he's using people like Mordecai. He's using people like Esther to get his will and way accomplished. See, the king thought he had the position and power. Haman thought he had the position and power. But they both forgot and underestimated the power of the Israelites' God. And Esther's story reminds us that earthly power is an illusion. In a commentary of the book of Esther, it explains it this way. The author of Esther is revealing the workings of worldly power and mocking its ultimate inability to determine the destiny of God's people. Earthly power is an illusion. 
What God is putting into place cannot be stopped. And see, as people of exile, you and I, as people who are living under various forms of earthly power, whether it be the government, whether it be our workplace, whether it be our school place, whether it be social uh, status or systems or classes, those are all earthly powers. And Esther reminds us that we serve a God who is greater than all of them. That when he feels hidden, when we feel like we can't see him, when we wonder, is he really working? He's there, behind the scenes, orchestrating the redemption of his people, the saving of his people. And I think that some of us would agree that there have been seasons of our lives, and if we were to write a book of our life, there are chapters, whole chapters, where we cannot write God's name because we cannot see him. But we take hope because we know, just like Esther's story tells us and reveals us, that God is up to something. He is up to something. He is always at work redeeming people, saving those who are in exile, and making all things new. John 16, 33 is Jesus' words, and this is what he says. I have told you these things so that in me, in Jesus, not in earthly powers, not in any other structure, but in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome. You'll have trouble, you'll feel like I'm not there, but put your faith in me, not systems, not structures, not other, other powers, but in me, because I have overcome. I have overcome. My way is always at work. So why do we have curiously strong faith? Because we follow a God who reminds us that earthly power is an illusion. And he is the one who is always at work. He is the one who is changing the world every day. But how does he work? How does he work? That's our next feeling. God uses the unexpected. God uses Esther why is she ex- unexpected? Well, let's, let me tell you this, that if we were sitting back in that time and we were hanging out with some Jewish people who had just heard that they were going to die on the 13th of the 12th month, and we said, don't worry, Esther is going to take care of it, they would have been like, ah, you got a backup plan for that? Like, you know, what's, the, what's our next go-to if that doesn't work, you know? Because we a lot of times see Queen Esther and we We have glorified her status and her story based on her title. But that's our Western lenses doing that. And we need to remember who Esther was in that time. She was a Jew. She was a a people who were in exile. She was oppressed. She was an orphan. That means that, you know, she had nobody alongside her. Her structure of who she was in society was so low. She was probably, we can guess based on the times, that she was a teenager. She was just a kid. And in that time, women and children, they were property, not even people. So here we have this, this girl who's so fragile. And, you know, again, yes, she's the queen, but don't we remember what happened to the last queen? So here we have, what we have is a powerless and weak girl who's, who's merely property, And she's hiding. She's probably scared out of her mind that she's been selected to be queen. And yet God would choose to use her. 
the weak and the powerless. If you think about it, she was pivotal in making sure the first Holocaust never happened because God uses the unexpected. It made me think of another story of Rosa Parks. And I, I love the story of Rosa Parks. And I'd always heard it. I just recently, as I was looking at her story, realized she's, she was 42 in this pivotal moment of her life. 42. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, when I heard that story, I was under the impression that she was like an elderly woman. And it kind of upset me a little bit because I was 42. Because I was like, I, I'm like, that, well, I'm like, she's not elderly. She's, she's my age. That's crazy. Like... Come on, people, let's, re- let's tell this story better. We're, we're messing up big time here. She's not an old woman, people. Um, and a total side note, like I think 42 years old, like there's this time change thing where we're like, am I still, do I still matter? Uh, am I done? And man, Rosa Parks here, here she is unexpected because she's this, she's this woman and she's living in a time when her people are oppressed Her people are like the Jewish people in in Esther's time. It's not good to be Rosa Parks. And one day after work, she gets on the bus, and she gets on the bus, and she sits in the appropriate section. She sits in the colored section of the bus. And the bus starts to fill up, and there's too many white people on the bus. And so the bus driver walks back, and he takes the colored section sign, and he moves it back a row. And he says to Rosa, you need to move back. And she's like, no, this is my seat. This is what I paid for. I'm not moving. And he says, if you don't move, I'm going to call the police and you'll go to jail. She said, I'm not, I'm not going to move. And here's this 42-year-old woman who in one decision becomes pivotal to the civil rights movement. She becomes an icon. She becomes a symbol of equality. Why? Because of a moment, how God uses the unexpected people. This is what Rosa said of that moment. I do not want to be mistreated. I do not want to be deprived of a seat that I had paid for. It was just time. There was an opportunity for me to take a stand, to express the way I felt about being treated in that manner. I had not planned to get arrested. I had, not, I had plenty to do without having to end up in jail that day. But when I had to face the decision, I didn't hesitate to do so because I felt that we had endured too long. God uses unexpected people and unexpected moments to redeem and save his people. It reminds me of Paul, who Pastor Mike spoke about last week, and his sufferings and all that he endured and his story. And we know that his story, he starts out when we first learn of him as the chief persecutor of the church. He's the number one bad guy. And yet somehow God ends up retelling his story, reusing it, working, so that he becomes one of the most famous apostles. He wrote more books in the New Testament than anybody. How How does God choose to use that person to accomplish this? To remind us that God uses the unexpected? I think one thing that Esther and, and Rosa and Paul weren't afraid of was this truth that Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians. He says this, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
See, I think Paul understood that being weak and powerless maybe wasn't the worst thing in the world. That it could be actually when we're weak and powerless that we understand how much God can do in and through us because we rely on his power. And see, later we're going to come to the communion table. And I think we come because of the unexpected way God would save the world. A savior born in the manger to a young girl raised by a carpenter to be a carpenter would unexpectedly save the world through his apparent powerless death on the cross. See, not a powerful king on an earthly throne, but a broken king on a cross. We have curiously strong faith because we recognize that our weaknesses and our shortcomings or our feelings of powerlessness, they do not exclude us from being part of what God is doing in the world. In fact, they may be the very things that make us available for it because God uses the unexpected and sometimes he uses the unexpected in us, which leads to our next point. Submit your position, place, and privileges to God's work. Now, I want to unpack this statement a little bit, take it piece by piece, and I want to start with this word submit. What does it even mean? And it means to accept the authority of someone else, to yield to someone else's rule and reign and power. Now, when we start to follow Jesus, many of us, we start by inviting him into our life. But the more I think we grow in our faith, we realize what the invitation is is not just to live in us, but to take full control of our lives. That, that's what submitting is. It's, it's about saying to Jesus, every part of my life, it is yours for your rule and for your reign. It's no longer mine, it's yours. And then let's go to the end of the statement, God's work. What is God's work? And when we look at Esther's story and when we look at scripture from the very beginning, his work has always been about saving people period, about redeeming people, about bringing people who were close to death to life. He's always been about redeeming them, bringing them into relationship with him. That's God's work. That's it. So Mordecai, he challenges Esther. He says, you've got to submit your position. You've got to come under this authority so that you can save the lives of Jews. And then he says this statement, who knows that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Basically, he's saying, what if the reason you're queen is this moment? And then it makes me think about us. It makes me think about our moments. Where are we at? What do we need to submit to God's work? And I think first of our positions. I think of our job titles. I think of our positions in our families. I think of uh, our, our seasons of life. All these elements that have given us position. And I think we need to look at these places and we need to say, what is God doing? How is he saving people and redeeming people about, around me? And then let me ask you the same question Mordecai did. For you, and who knows, but you have come to your position for such a time as this. And then what about our places, where we live, where we're at, my, my parish? What's happening around me? How am I seeing people being redeemed? How am I seeing people being saved? How do I get in on that? 
I actually see my friend over here, Jim, and this is not in my notes, so it's not, I'm going off script a little bit, guys. Um, he told a story. He led a mission trip for us to Dream Center for our high school students to, uh, to L.A., and he's telling us a story about when he lived in Pittsburgh that every day he would walk to work and he would see a homeless man sitting outside. Finally, one day he decides he's going to have lunch with him, have a meal with him. And this relationship begins to grow and every, they introduce their families to each other. They know each other. And when Jim decides that it's time to move to Seattle, it's actually a loss for him to leave his friend. And it's his place. He sees this man in his place. Would you have eyes to see what's happening, how God is working in your place? And let me ask you the same question that Mordecai would, would ask. And who knows but that you have come to your place for such a time as this. What about privilege? It's such a touchy word right now. But there's so many rights and advantages we have in our life, so many blessings, so many things that we have acquired. And I can't help but wonder, are these things here for such a time of redeeming and saving people? Like Mordecai, he would ask you, and who knows but you have come to your privilege for such a time as this. See, when we put it all together, when we look at Esther's story of faith, what we have to understand, it's, it's obviously all starts with God. The first two points on your outline, they're all about God and what God is doing and his, his ways and his power and his work. And that's a big deal. But at some point, like Esther, we have to realize that God is saying, will you participate in what I'm doing? Mordecai even says to Esther, he says, you know what, if you say no, hope will arise somewhere else because God is working. But I'm giving you a chance to participate in it. And that's where our submission comes in. That's where we submit to God's power, where we say, yes, God, I see you working. I see how you're working, and I give you every part of me. I give you my positions. I give you my place. I give you my privilege. And I say, let me be a part of your work. Let me participate in how you are redeeming people, how you are saving people from death to life. I want in. See, and I think it starts every day with a daily surrendering. Submission is about waking up in the morning and it's saying this simple prayer, this simple prayer that St. Ignatius said. He, he said, you have given me all that I have, all that I am, and I surrender all to your divine will. You're saying, You've given me every position, every privilege, every place that I am, all that I am, and I surrender it to what you're doing. And see, all of this takes us to the edge. I think it kind of takes us to this edge, this reality like God's at work and I need to submit, but there's one last thing that we kind of have to do. And it's, it's what Esther did, and it's this final step is step out in courage. See, Esther comes to terms with what is required of her, what the cost is. She knows what will happen if she steps out, and she knows what will happen if she chooses not to step out. She has a choice. And Esther chooses courage, even if it meant her own death. And many of us, we will never have to face that decision. We will never have to say, if I perish, I perish, physically. But I do think that if we are willing to participate, willing to submit ourselves to what God is doing, there will be a death. 
It will be our desires, our comfort, our dreams, our statuses. See, we may have to be willing to say, I will let these things perish so that I might participate in the redeeming work of people. And Jesus said it this way. He said, if you follow me, it means you must be willing to lay down your life. See, let's be clear. We understand that choice. We know that to follow Esther means we must step out. What I think is interesting and I want to point out is that Esther didn't perish when she stepped out. Her worst fear was death, but it didn't come. And I can't help but wonder, and I I know I've had many conversations about this, about how many times fear of what following Jesus may mean for our lives keeps us from truly living out the invitation of radical faith. The fear. What will people say about me? If I obey, what will I lose? If I obey, what will it cost me? If I go, will I be uncomfortable? If I speak up, will anyone listen? I'm so afraid. Just like Esther. But Nelson Mandela, he said this about courage. He said that I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. So yes, it's natural, it's normal to fear taking a step of courage. But we step out because even when we're afraid, we know that God is at work. We step out in courage because we believe, we truly believe that what is on the other side of our step of courage is something even better than what we fear. That's why we step out. We step out because we believe that. And as we end our time together, I want to remind each of us again about this being uh, people not in our place, not in our home. And it can feel hopeless. It can feel like, what's going on in the world? But I want you to feel hope, knowing that God is working. That how the world is right now is not how the world will be when it ends. And so we get to creatively imagine, just like Esther, how God might be working in us. How by submitting to him, giving over these things in our lives, how God might be redeeming people through us, how God might be making all things new through us. So I want to pray that we would be people of courage, like Esther, who would step up, who would step out and be willing to say, I'll go. I'm not, I'm not going to stand on the edge anymore. I'm going to go, and I'm going to act, and I'm going to do And I would encourage you to go ahead and grab that connection card. And one of the action steps is this week I'll step out and courage in my position, place, and privilege. And I want to pray that we would do this together. What was so powerful about Esther's story is that Esther and Mordecai had each other and they gathered everybody to pray and fast together. And so I want to encourage you to mark that step that together we would step out and courage. There would be strength in numbers. No one is doing this alone. Let me pray for you. 
Jesus, thank you so much that we can trust and we can rely that you are always working. That you, even when we can't see you, even when we can't sense you, even when we feel hopeless, God, you are at work. That is the truth. And so, God, we hold on to that. God, we pray for our hearts that we would be willing to submit to you. That we'd be willing to give up our positions and our places and our privilege to see people come to know you, to be see people see, see people redeemed, God. And that we would see it and then we would courageously step out. God, would you fill us with that courage? God, that we might be a room full of Esther's with curiously strong faith in a world that is so dark and so needs more people who are not afraid to step out in courage. In Jesus' name, amen.